be with you this morning. I'm about to preach on the love command from John 13, but God is way ahead of me. He's already working the love command into your hearts. He started working the love command into your hearts when He caused you to be born again and put the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you. And I witnessed some of it this past week through some of your labors. So I know He's working in you, and I know He's working in, in all of you. So I want this message to be one that, that, that only stirs you up to more love and good deeds. That, that moves your hearts to, to love one another more fervently for the world's sake. That, that, that fans into flame the love of Jesus already present in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. There are some of you in this room that don't know the love of Jesus yet, but I pray that this sermon will lead you into it. For those of you who know Jesus' love, I I pray that it increases it in you. So let's read our passage together now with this hope and with this prayer for our church that God increase our love for one another. And I'll begin reading in verse 31. Remember that Judas has just left the scene and uh, to betray Jesus, and then we get these words for the new community that Jesus is establishing, with these 11. Verse 31, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself And glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would make this holy word a part of the, the, the fabric of our being, that you would... Work it so richly into our souls this morning that, that uh, from this day forward we will be a people who embodies this command to love as Jesus has loved us. I pray it in His name. Amen. So Jesus has just sent out Judas. He's now left with the 11 disciples, 11 disciples that He chose to bear fruit for His kingdom. It will be these 11 that He will use to get things started at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. But before that day comes, He's going to work some things. He's going to prepare these disciples for something. He's going to work some things into their hearts with these instructions here in verses 31 to 35. There's something crucial that Jesus wants built into these 11 
disciples something so much at the core of what it means to be Jesus' disciple that not to have it would mean you know nothing of God and His salvation. That crucial something is the sacrificial love of Jesus. That love is the mark of kingdom citizenship. In fact, that Christ-reflecting love must be so much a part of our being that the world witnesses it in us and shining forth from us in all the various tangible deeds we do for one another. That's why I titled the message, A New Commandment for a New People. That's you, if you're in the Lord Jesus, with a global impact. So what I want to do is take you there to that reality of love, Working in a new people for a global impact. And I want to do it in four parts or four steps that I see building on each other throughout the passage. So number one is this. We need to see what's behind the newness of Jesus' command. We need to see what's behind the newness of Jesus' command. In verse 34, Jesus says... A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And any of us who have read our Bibles, or who have heard anybody quote Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, are going, wait just a minute. What's so new about this commandment, Jesus, if it's been around for centuries? What's so new about Jesus' command to love one another? It's not as if he's bringing in a new teaching that overturns what God revealed beforehand in the law. Jesus himself said that the law and the prophets could be summed up in just two commands, to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what's so new? Well, what's going on is that all that the law anticipated... Regarding love is now being fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of love that he is establishing, beginning with these 11. In other words, the newness of Jesus' command is bound up with what time it is, what age has dawned, what day has finally come. Part of what the Old Testament anticipated with its command To love your neighbor as yourself was a day when people in God's kingdom did just that from a new heart. A day when people would be freed from the power of self-rule and self-indulgence that so plagued humanity since Adam and which wreaked havoc in Israel. Even prohibitions in the law such as do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not lie. Do not covet, all of which are related to loving your neighbor. All these prohibitions anticipated a kingdom when they'd no longer be needed. They looked forward to a day when murder, stealing, adultery, lying and coveting would be unthinkable among God's people. Why? Because Jesus ushers in a kingdom full of love, a kingdom without sin, without hatred, a kingdom that doesn't need signs everywhere saying, don't do this, don't do that, because we're all loving each other with new hearts, full of the Spirit and Jesus' glory. A 
kingdom where we're totally other-oriented in our desires and selfless in our actions all the time. Now, the final day when that kingdom of love is perfected in God's people is still coming. But by telling His disciples here, a new commandment I give to you, Jesus is telling His disciples, that kingdom is already dawning. The kingdom of love is already breaking into the old order because that kingdom is bound up with Jesus and what He's fixing to do for them on the cross. If you turn with me to 1 John, real quick. 1 John, John is is reflecting further later on about this, this love command that Jesus gave to them, this new commandment. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 8, he, he talks about this new commandment. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What time is it? The darkness is passing away. The true light of God's kingdom, the light of His love, is breaking into the present. That's what the new commandment is about. The commandment is new in the sense that never before in the history of mankind had the love demanded under the law been fully displayed in a person, in a human being. That's partly because every person born in Adam couldn't fulfill the command to love their neighbor because of their bondage to sin. Just look at the history of Israel in your Bibles. And it's partly because all that was bound up with neighbor love under the law anticipated the one person who could actually bring that love to its completion, Jesus Christ, and then put that love in a people that look like Him and live like Him and serve like Him. Jesus is the Word. Love your neighbor as yourself incarnate. Love command is new because it's now attached to a person, Jesus Christ. And all that he's bringing to pass in his kingdom, it's not just attached to a letter in the law. And that leads us directly into our second part, namely, the standard and fuel for obeying Jesus' love command. I want to look at the standard and the fuel for obeying Jesus' love command. I just said that the newness of Jesus' command is bound up with Jesus And Him bringing a kingdom that fulfills what prior revelation in the law and the prophets anticipated. But there's an additional element bound up with the newness of Jesus' love command. And it's this. The very act of love that makes the kingdom possible also becomes the standard of love that governs the kingdom. Or we might say it another way. The sacrificial love of Jesus not only brings people out of the darkness into the kingdom, it rules the people in that kingdom. 
Right? If you wear Jesus' crown in the kingdom, you must bear His cross. You must take up His cross of love. I'm getting this from a couple of things I see coming together in the passage. First off, we see the glorification language again in verses 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. We've seen throughout John's Gospel, Jesus' glorification is a reference to Jesus' death and exaltation. It's the climactic moment when Jesus reveals what God the Father is like through His perfect obedience unto death on the cross. When Jesus dies on the cross, the Father's glory, in a sense, goes public. It shines. It shines forth. It goes public for you to see, for you to experience tangibly that man represents what God is like. He is God Himself. The cross showcases the glory of God's holiness and the glory of God's love. So Jesus' death for His Father's glory is in view here. And this comes together with Jesus' love, mentioned in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and here it is, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. So when the glorification of the Father in Jesus' death comes together with Jesus' love for us, this is what we get. Jesus loved us by glorifying His Father even when it required laying down His life for us. Jesus loved us by glorifying His Father even when it required laying His life down for us. This has been John's testimony throughout the gospel. God the Father looked down on a rebellious people, a people who provoked His wrath with every one of their breaths and could merit absolutely no love from above. God the Father looked on these people, people like you and me, and from within Himself, He simply chose to love us. And His Son who had been with Him for all of eternity and loves doing everything the Father does, was on board with Him loving us. And we know He was on board because He submitted to the Father's loving plan to rescue us, even when that meant Heaven's King would make Himself nothing, would take the form of a servant, and would get on a cross and die a death that He Himself did not deserve. More than that, His love didn't just consider these things from up above It took initiative such that the Son of God even came down to earth. God's Son actually left glory and entered a broken world in order to save it. He loved a people that hated Him. He blessed those who cursed Him with the truth. He served a people who rejected His care. He stooped to wash their feet only to be betrayed. More than that, His love looked eternal wrath in the face. Wrath that wasn't even His, but ours. And he bled through his pores in prayer for the strength not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. His love then gave all on the cross. He loved our souls to death in order that others who had nothing might gain everything through a right relationship with God. Here is a glimpse. This is the story John has been telling us all along and the story that we know 
of our Savior Jesus Christ. And this kind of love is our standard. If we are kingdom citizens, this is our standard. We pursue nothing less than this sort of Godward, sacrificial love. Now, he doesn't mean that you must give your life to atone for each other's sins. Verse 33 tells us that's only a work Jesus can do. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. It's just a little while, so he's fixing to die. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You can't do the work I'm about to do. Only Jesus can take the world's sins on his back and enter the darkness of death under God's wrath. That's a work that only he can do. He is God and he is without sin. He's not commanding you to atone for people's sins, but he is commanding you to imitate his sacrificial love for others. It's rather sobering when you think of it. That is, if we're honest with how profoundly selfish we really are. This standard leaves us absolutely undone before our Lord and forces us to cast ourselves constantly upon His grace to create in us supernaturally a kind of love we cannot produce on our own. But isn't it also the case that by looking at the standard of love, by looking at Jesus and His sacrificial love for us, isn't it the case that by looking there, we're also moved to love one another. Isn't it the case that the standard for our obedience, Jesus' love for us, also becomes the fuel for our obedience? The motivation for us to follow this command. Here's what I mean. This is what's bound up with Jesus' sacrificial love for us. Jesus' love drove him to take on the same human flesh in which we had failed to love others. Right? We, we don't love other people in this flesh. That's why Jesus came and took this flesh. He took on human flesh in which we had failed to love others. Jesus then fulfilled the law perfectly at every point in love for God and love for neighbor. And he did it for you and for me. Jesus then died for sins, not his own, in order that we might receive forgiveness for every occasion we haven't loved our neighbor. In thought, in deeds, in desires, in words. And when he died, he also broke the power of sin over our lives, which all along had hindered our ability to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to top it all off, his death became the pathway back to glory, the realm from which he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts in order that we might live, love, and look like Jesus Christ. So yes, his love is the standard. But look at all it accomplishes to free you and me to love as he loved. It also becomes the motivation. Which means, all, which means our obedience to this command is never a matter of sheer willpower. Just giving yourself a quick kick in the pants in the morning, just get it together and love somebody. It's never a matter of sheer willpower. There is nothing in you that will fire a kindle to love anybody. 
you might be able to do outward things that look loving to others. But 1 Corinthians 13 tells us if that's the way we're loving people, then it's all for nothing. The solution is to feast on Jesus' love for you and to let His love fuel every fiber of your being to make strides in becoming like Him. The standard is also the fuel. It tells us what He did to enable us to love as He loved. And that needs to be our meditation. That needs to be what we chew on day in and day out. Which means, third, the work of Jesus actually secures a new community who embodies Jesus' love command. His work makes this a possibility. Secures a new community who embodies Jesus' love command. There's actually a new people who give hands and feet to Jesus' love command. It starts with the eleven here, but thousands upon thousands would be added later after Pentecost, and the Spirit does His work in the preaching of the gospel. So that's you and me if we're following Jesus today. If, you, if you, Jesus is your Lord in your life, then His cross and His resurrection and the gift of His Spirit means sacrificial love is not just a possibility for you, it's already present in you. It's already present in you. The question is, what should it look like coming out of you? That's what we need to work on. Take note, there's no option of whether you should love each other or not. This This is not optional here. Jesus has not left that up for His disciples to decide who they will love and who they will not love. If you love the bridegroom, then you must love his bride. Thank you, Jonathan Watson at Care Group Leaders Meeting. If you love the bridegroom, then you must love his bride. He is jealous for her salvation. And to remain indifferent to his church means you're indifferent to Christ, and he will guarantee your eternal condemnation. Go home and read Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. But a disciple learns to love what Jesus loves. If Jesus' spirit is in you, then you will love what he loves. He loves his church. He loves his people. We will love them as well. So the question is, what should Jesus' love look like coming out of us? Redeemer, how are you going to love each other as a church? We've been through a definition of Christian love before in the the life of this church. But I want to give it to you again. Just so we're clear and not falling into some sort of weak emotionalism on the one hand. Or some sort of dispassionate duty on the other hand. Or other false notions of love. When we look at Christ and the lives of the other people. Apostles who imitate his love, this is how we might define Christian love. Christian love is a genuine affection for another's ultimate good in God, such that we spend ourselves sacrificially to see them obtain it. I'll say it again, and Joel, I think I've got it written on the screen. Christian love 
is a genuine affection for another's ultimate good in God, such that we spend ourselves sacrificially to see them obtain it. Thanks, brother. That's the love we find in Christ for His people. And that's the love that should characterize our church. The maturity of a church is not found in having all of its theological I's and T's crossed. The maturity of a church is not merely found in what we confess or merely in what we achieve, but in how much we love one another as Jesus has loved us. Jesus pursued our ultimate good in God unto death. 1 John 3.16 says, this, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So what does this look like? I want to just give you a smattering of examples from the New Testament. If you think of it this way, Jesus gives the love command in the Gospels, Acts, and the letters in your Bible are fleshing out what that looks like in Jesus' in people. So, here's what it looks like. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having in you the mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Always seek to do good to one another, and to everyone be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. It even assumes you're going to offend each other a bit. Forgive one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, living in harmony with one another. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Contribute to the needs of the saints and Seek to show hospitality, right? Having people in your home. Use your gifts to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And on and on we could go with hundreds more examples, tangible examples of what Jesus' love command looks like when it works itself out in His people. But I think you get the point. Christ's love is boundless. Right? It touches every area of our lives. Every relationship that we have with other brothers and sisters in the church. But it may help us grow if I got specific and pointed out two areas where we've been weak as a church and need to grow. I'm not saying it's non-existent. I'm just saying it's weak and it needs to grow. The elders have talked about these two areas and we want to ask you to join us in prayer for God to strengthen these two areas in our church body. This is part of what I meant earlier, that God was already answering some of these prayers. So they are the areas of initiative and investment. Initiative and investment. Initiative to actually enter each other's lives, messy and awkward as it may be. And then once there making the investment that leads to Christ-like transformation and service. So what about initiative? I know many of you love this church and you love your care group 
and you want the best for each other. I've heard you say it. And I'm thankful. Having such affection for each other means God is already working in your heart. Kind of like uh, in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that, that God put into Titus's heart an earnest care for the church in Corinth. Right? I know it's there. This is the work of God. But when Jesus decided to love us in glory, He didn't stay in glory. He entered our wrecked lives. He entered our poor state. He took the initiative and entered our mess of a world in order to serve us and to bring us life. And our love must do the same. So, for example, I mentioned Galatians 6.2. I'm just going to pick one that I mentioned earlier. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. All right? That doesn't mean everyone should just exchange each other's burdens. Right? We'd be a wreck. That's not what it's saying. What it means is that those who are more able should bear the burdens of those who are less able. But here's what may challenge some of us. That command assumes that we actually know each other's burdens, doesn't it? It actually assumes we know each other's burdens. It assumes that we're taking the initiative to know what each other's burdens really are. What they are specifically. It assumes that we're making efforts to be around each other more, not less. Having each other over to our houses, more, not less. These burdens get brought up on the, around the table. Not letting people in care groups, right, get away with surface level responses to our questions of them about life and their marriage and the workplace, their Christian walk. But actually taking the initiative to probe more, ask more, draw out more about how they're really doing. And I mean this in a very tactful, respectful way, right? I've got to watch out for this as a husband, you know. I'll follow my wife around the house. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Can you tell me? Can you tell me? What's wrong? Why aren't you talking? You know, it's like, you're like it's like a, you're, you're wrong right now. <laughs> Let me be with Jesus for a minute. Right? So I'm not saying, you know what I'm saying. Just, just uh, probe respectfully, in ways that are helpful. So, here's something else. This past week at the care group leaders meeting, you know, we talked about how sometimes we even make false assumptions that other people in the church are simply handling everything. Other people in the church are handling things. Other people in the church are caring for so-and-so. We just, we just make the assumption, right? Instead of taking the initiative and asking or serving, we just assume it's all being handled. You know, maybe you know some of these assumptions, right? Oh, you know, I bet the elders have already done something about it. I'm not even going to worry about it. Probably not. Oh, I bet they've got plenty of volunteers for nursery. You know, I bet Gary's going to take care of that soon. I bet their care group is, you know, it's already handling that. Probably got plenty of meals. Oh, they've been parents long enough. They probably don't need any of my help. 
parents like going down, drowning in kids? <laughs> yes, I do. You know, I see you getting up. I know what's going on. You know, when I talked to him a month ago, he seemed to be fighting lust and internet pornography. I'm not going to bother him with that anymore. He's probably doing fine. Folks, these sorts of assumptions do not reflect Christ-like love. These kind of assumptions can actually become subtle ways of showing we'd rather not die to our own self-interests. If we live by assumptions that love is happening instead of seeking out the truth, then we'll end up loving nobody or loving only when it's convenient to us. Our sinful flesh and the devil will always tempt us to build stories that keep us from loving like Christ's love. That's what's going on when we're making these assumptions, these false assumptions. We're building stories, and that story determines how we live. If you believe that story, I'm going, you're not going to love. Christ's love takes initiative. It pursues the truth about circumstances and people in those circumstances. It enters people's lives at all costs to self-interests and schedules and pocketbooks and your regular seat in the pew each Sunday. It initiates the hard conversations. It asks the deeper questions in life. It makes the phone calls. It makes the text messages. It sends the Facebook... What do you call them? Messages? I don't know. I don't have Facebook. Use it. It cares for the needs of others. It pursues the other person's good in God sacrificially. So let's look to Jesus and go there together. Let's take some initiative in our love. And what about investment? So this moves beyond initiative and brings us face to face with how we're going to serve each other's good in God. This is difficult because it requires even more death to self. More setting aside of our own things to serve the interests of others. There's a pastor in Arizona named Timothy Savage. Writes a little book called The Church. I mean, I don't know, 30 pages. It's excellent. Get it. It's like two bucks. I don't think we have it back there. Timothy Savage. But he writes this as he reflects on the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. You remember the parable? Guy gets mugged. He's left half dead. The Jewish priest walks by, the Levite walks by, it's the Samaritan that stops and picks him up, binds up his wounds, takes him to the end, etc. And, and Jesus says this, gives this parable basically to say, are you a neighbor? So this is, what, this is what Savage writes on Luke 10. He says, we as a church reproduce the love of Christ when we pick up the broken lives of people right in front of us, bearing them on our own backs as though their brokenness were our own. And we will continue to bear up such lives until they are no longer broken. Binding up wounds, pouring on the oil and the wine, carrying them to the inn, paying out whatever is required, showing mercy, Proving to be a true neighbor. To love your neighbor as yourself is not merely to love another as much as yourself. I want you to get this. 
To love your neighbor as yourself is not merely to love another as much as yourself, but to take up the life of another and make it your own. To take up the life of another and make it your own. I wonder if we're at a place where we can say this of each other as a church. Are we kind of people willing and available and ready to take up each other's broken lives and make them our own? This is what I mean by investment. Jesus invested in us when He took on our humanity. He invested when He endured the trouble at the hands of sinners. He invested when He bore our sins in His body on the tree. He gave Himself to see us saved and raised up. He overcame the obstacles to give us life. In the same way, we give ourselves over to see the brokenhearted bound up. To see the weak among us encouraged. The stressful people resting in the Lord. The sick people prayed for. The run-down missionary refreshed. The brother looking for a job fed and housed and clothed. The one who's going astray turned back from his evil ways. The mom who needs a break served. The couple whose marriage is rocky counseled. The brother who's lazy admonished. The sister who's depressed, comforted. Jesus' love requires initiative and it requires investment. I asked one of our deacons uh, two weeks ago, call him on the phone because Dan's car had broken down in the parking lot over here. And I called him to go pick up this part. I got a text message, sent him a picture of the part to go pick up, got a text message back, said, He's in the middle of dinner, so he sets it aside, and I get a text message that says, I'm on it like a rat on a Cheeto. <laughs> right, Chris Cronenworth? Yeah, that, that's some initiative right there, right? Rat on a Cheeto. Yeah. That's not the standard, though. Jesus is the standard. But... His love requires initiative and requires investment. We're not an an event that happens on Sunday. We are a people who love one another as Jesus loves us. And the way we will grow in this love is by looking again to the love of Jesus himself for us and learning to make fewer and fewer and fewer self-calculations in our relationships with one another. The less we're consumed with ourselves and the more we're consumed with Jesus, the more His love will shine in our community. One last part. I want to look at the worldwide goal of Jesus' love command. The worldwide goal of Jesus' love command. All this sacrificial love for one another serves something greater than ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean Redeemer. When we love one another, it's serving something much greater than Redeemer. It's serving the mission of Jesus Christ. You can see it there in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
When Jesus' love rules a community of people, that people serves as a visible testimony to the world that Jesus is mighty to save. So this is the worldwide goal of Jesus' love command. I mean, think about it. Our, our whole basis for loving one another differs from the rest of the world. We don't love each other because we have a favorite football team or a common education or an identical ethnicity or the same level of income or the same workplace or the same hobbies. We're not naturally compatible people. Titus 3.3 says it's actually the opposite. We're naturally foolish Slaves to various passions, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's pre-Christ for us. That's what we are naturally. That's what the world around us is, who do not have Jesus. But since the Spirit of God has changed us, we stand united in Christ. He is the basis of our love and fellowship and unity. More than that, His love moves us to do things that are rather peculiar to the watching world. For example, we love each other for Jesus' sake. Right? No matter how different we may be in our interests and backgrounds and needs and likes and personal preferences, at the end of the day, we love each other for Jesus' sake. Gathering with others who aren't like us to sing and fellowship and serve sometimes for hours together, seems absolutely ridiculous to the world. But it just goes to show then that our lives are not ultimately about us, but they are about Christ and what He's doing in us. Or another example of our peculiar love for one another, we rebuke and correct each other with the truth in order that we might not be deceived by sin, in order that our love might deepen for Jesus Christ. Right? That's what true love does. Love is a genuine affection for another's good in God. Not just in anything. In God. We pursue people's well-being in God. Even when that means dying to our own comforts and our own fears of man to go to a brother and correct him. To go to a sister and turn her away from her evil ways the world would just keep promoting tolerance and acceptance without bounds. But that's not ultimately loving because it fails to bring people to God. Our love for one another stands out in this way from the world. There are other ways it sticks out, but the point of all of them is that our love for one another is to shine the selfless love of Jesus into a world darkened with sin and wrecked with despair. The church stands as a beacon of hope to the world that true peace and companionship only comes through the relentless, self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. Church, one of the strategic ways that you can love the world more is by loving one another more. This is God's strategy. The church is God's strategy to win the world. By loving each other more, You love the world more. 
the fire of your love for one another should glow and radiate the warmth of Christ to the dark world that sits cold in sin and that knows no such love of Christ. Maybe an example would help. About seven years ago, I used to meet with uh, four other brothers for prayer on Friday night. And, uh, and then we'd go out for evangelism and discipleship on a number of days of the week. Okay. There were four, so there were four of us. George Haas, who's gone to be with the Lord. Some of you knew him. Uh, he was the joyful, jovial, Hispanic brother. Then there was Jack. He's the, the, the firm, resilient leader of the group from Botswana, Africa. And then Mark was our short Chinese brother, but who was bold with the gospel, even though he had just broken English. And then myself, the uh, nerdy white guy with boots. <laughs> so we go out together into the neighborhoods... And share the gospel with people. But one thing that would come up quite often in conversations was why in the world these four guys were hanging out with each other. I mean, you got an African guy, the Hispanic guy who's happy all the time, me and Mark, who's from China, with broken English. What in the world do you have in common? You couldn't have put more different people and personalities in our circle. But we loved each other like crazy for Jesus' sake. And people wanted to know why. Why we hung out with each other. Our only explanation was Jesus Christ. He had united us in one spirit, given us a love for one another that looked beyond what we're interested in in this world. It looked what we're going to hold in common for eternity, namely Christ Himself. And he, taught, and he taught us to serve beside one another for the advance of the gospel. The explanation of our love again and again for one another was a regular entry point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus said it would be here and just as he prayed it would be in John 17, 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's a love from God that makes us one for the world's sake. That the world might believe that Jesus saves, that Jesus' final reign has begun in the relationships of His people. Your love for each other serves as a witness to the world, Redeemer. That's what I saw happening this week in Vacation Bible Camp. That's what we should want to, want to see more of in our care groups. That's what we should desire all week long in our interactions with each other. Whether small interactions or big ones. That our love for one another makes Jesus' love look beautiful to the watching world. That our selfless pursuit of others bears witness that Jesus has won for himself a people. And has filled that people with His sacrificial love. May it be so even more for us. Let's make it our prayer. I encourage you to pray 
with us that God would make our love for one another fervent. Not just so that our church might be stronger, but so that people from outside might be persuaded to find the same love that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that God would so increase our love for each other that it attracts the lost world around us to find in Jesus what they've never known before in this world of self, selfishness and pride. And when I say making it more um, prevalent among us that the world might see us, I don't mean that we always just stay here in these facilities or stay in our own care groups together and let the world come to us. I mean, we ought to be loving one another before the watching world, going to them together, not just alone. And after you've prayed for it, prayed for this, to be so in our church, pray that God will begin the work in you as an individual. We cannot produce the sacrificial love Jesus is commanding here on our own. But God can, and He will be pleased to do so when you ask Him. The reason I know this is because if you're in Christ, God is in the middle of preparing you for a kingdom of love that's still to come. He's already started the process when He caused you to be born again. He is preparing you for the new heavens and the new earth where you will, where you will, will, will love each other perfectly. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place of love. It won't be characterized by war or rumors of war by racism or ethnic pride, by economic division or social chaos, by age preference or affinity favorites, there will be one choir of redeemed saints, diverse but united by the blood of Jesus Christ, all of them thrilled with God's glory and increasingly delighted to serve each other in God's love for eternity. There will never be any tension or awkwardness or fear or envy or strife or anything that will cause your division because no sinful impulses will be present in any of your souls forever. Only love will be your words and your deeds and your thoughts and your desires, because no sins will be hiding God's glory in Christ from your eyes or hindering the enjoyment of God's glory in Christ as it's reflected in the selfless Christ-like deeds of His saints. So take heart, believer. God is not through with you yet, and there's coming in a day when He will finish the good work in you. And for those of you who do not know Jesus' love, please consider the cross this morning that I spoke of earlier where God's love was, in fact, displayed for you. You deserved wrath and judgment for your sins, but God sent His only Son to remove that wrath and bear that judgment that you might then be forgiven in Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus today and come and talk with me or Wes or Dale, or any of the people who invited you to come, talk to us that you might know the love we spoke of today more deeply. Let's pray. Dale, would you come lead us in that?